If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7. We are in Luke chapter 7 this morning. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. That is, the disciples of John reported all the things they had been seeing Jesus do back to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This morning as we look to God's word, we actually want to finish looking at this passage and the verses that follow through verse 35. We began two weeks ago looking at this passage and uh, in one of those rare times I ran out of time. I didn't get to say all the things that I wanted to say. So we're going to be looking at what would have been point three from two weeks ago. And uh, as we do that, we're actually going to go back because some of you weren't here or to at least get the context a little better, we're going to do a very shrunken down version of points one and two. But the point of what we want to see this morning is the answer to the question that John asks and the disciples ask Jesus directly on his behalf and that is this, Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? That is a question that even today people are asking. They hear about Jesus. They hear that he is a savior and they're asking, perhaps not verbally, but in their mind and their heart, they're asking, is Jesus truly the savior that God has sent or should we be looking elsewhere? Should we be looking somewhere else? And what Jesus himself wants to show and what Luke wants to tell us by Jesus' words and actions is this. Yes, Jesus is the promised Savior that God has sent and you need not look to anyone else. You can put your faith in him. That's what we want to see this morning. And so the first thing we want to see is this, that Jesus encourages faith. That Jesus encourages faith. Behind the scenes of our passage, the reason why John himself is not there is that he is in prison. He is in prison because he has confronted uh, the, the most powerful land uh, man in the land right there where they're living, the king over that region, Herod the Great. He has confronted him for his sin. Herod didn't like that, and so he's put him in prison. And like many in Israel during that day, John had understood those passages that predicted the coming of Christ to say that God would not simply send a spiritual savior, though he would, but he would also send a political savior. 
That is to say that David's greater son, the Messiah, the anointed, was, was expected not just to come and to turn the hearts of the people back to God, but that he would come and turn out the pagans from the land. That he would throw off the shackles of Roman rule that Israel was living under at that, that time and restore a physical national kingdom to Israel. John himself has preached that when, when Jesus came that he was the Christ and that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That is to say that he would immerse his people with salvation and judgment. But so far, there's no judgment. John preached a message of judgment and he got put in prison and Jesus has not preached a message of judgment. He is expecting Jesus to condemn Herod as well, but he's not done that. And so now he's discouraged because he's wondering, is Jesus the one who is to come or should we be looking for someone else? So these disciples of John show up and Jesus understands what's going on. He understands what's going on in John's heart. He understands his need to be encouraged in his faith. And so he intends to act and speak in a way that they can go back and give a report to John that will do just that. How does he do that? How does he encourage John's faith? First of all, he encourages it with patient care. He encourages with patient care. John's disciples are sent to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now remember who John the Baptist is. He is Jesus' cousin. He was born just a, a, a few months before him. He's been this powerhouse of a prophet. He's been a, a force of nature, paving this road, as it were, spiritually for God's people. And now he's sitting in prison and he's discouraged. How easy would it have been... In other words, would we have really faulted Jesus for, for telling the disciples, you go back to John and man up in your faith. Come on. I mean, you know it's me. You've predicted me. The Spirit of God is upon you. you, you get your act together here, O ye of little faith. Come on. You, you're, you're the forerunner for the Messiah. But that's not what he does, is it? It's, it's not what we see him doing in the text. Instead, Jesus is patient and he is tender and he is caring towards John's faith. And Jesus is patient with us that way today as well. When he sees faith, that's sincere. Even when it's weak and discouraged, he doesn't deal harshly with it, just the opposite. He deals tenderly with it. He deals kindly with it. He doesn't snuff it out or break it apart, but rather he is patient and caring. What that means for us today is that when we find ourselves discouraged, when we find ourselves in a place in life where we, we are not living as faithfully as we should, when we are having doubts and wondering about, about God and our life before Him, the one thing we should not do is to be afraid to go to Jesus. Just the opposite. We should know Jesus is ready and willing to receive you and to encourage your faith with patient care. In fact, he essentially says to John's disciples, I'll tell you what, yeah, I've got a message for you to take back to John, but first hang out with me for a while. Hang out with me for a while, and then I'll give you something to send back. And what we see in him doing that is that, second of all, he encourages with powerful displays. He encourages with powerful displays. Luke says in verse 21, in that hour... We don't know if it literally means over the course of an hour or simply in the same time that they were asking that question. Frankly, it doesn't really matter. But in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. The point is, Jesus reminds John's followers of who he is and what authority he wields. He lets John's disciples see him in action intentionally. And he says, I'm going to put the power of God on display before your eyes. 
And he's doing that, that John might be encouraged that, yes, Jesus is the one who is to come. And even today, God encourages the faith of his people by demonstrating his power. If you want to be encouraged in your faith, then either get on email or or walk over and, and find her at the end of the service and you ask Terry about what has happened with Dave over the last three months about how Dave has walked patiently with a Chinese co-worker across the internet for week after week after week through the Gospel of John, and now this man is saved, and he is seeking out a church, and he, the Gospel is spreading through his family. It, it, it is amazing, and it is the power of God on display. That is how he seeks to encourage our faith. But most often, most often, it's not just with patient care, Sometimes we won't see the powerful displays, but he always encourages us with promised faithfulness, with promised faithfulness. What do I mean by that? Listen to what Jesus says. He performs all these miracles and then he says, verse 22 and 23, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sights, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, if you say, okay, I I don't get it then I would say, go read your Bible more. Because what Jesus is doing is almost verbatim quoting passages from the Old Testament book of Isaiah that predict his coming. It's two chapters that he's drawing from, and he is, he is, uh, he is pulling together these things that talk about what the promised Savior, what the Messiah, what the Christ is going to do when he comes. Now, why is that important? Because John was a Bible man. He knew and he loved God's word. And so when the people ask, who are you? Why are you out here baptizing? He quotes from Isaiah to describe his ministry. Isaiah's prophetic word about John himself. So John knows the book of Isaiah. And when Jesus says, here's what you say back to him, he gives him the word of God. The point is to say, John, I know you can't see everything clearly right now. I know that you're not seeing what you expected to see. Nevertheless... You are seeing part of what you expected to see. God is at work. God is fulfilling his promises. Yes, I am the one who is to come. I am here just as you've said, just as you have believed. In other words, Jesus is telling John, look at what God promises in the Bible. And look, he is fulfilling that promise. And, and, and so to go back to what we just said, has God promised that when Christ is lifted up, When the gospel is preached that he will draw all men to himself? Yes. And surprisingly, when Dave read through the gospel, somebody got saved. Maybe there is a God. Right? Yeah, there is. And so also for us today, it is so important that we become a people of the book. That we look not just in our few favorite passages, but our reading spans the pages of the Bible so we can see again and again and again and again all throughout time, God makes a promise and He keeps it. He makes a promise and He keeps it. I'm not like God. I do my best, but sometimes I make promises I can't keep. I tell my kids, absolutely, we'll do that tonight. Right now we got to clean the house though. Guess what happens? I run out of time. I am a finite being bound by the 24 hours of the day in my kid's bedtime. And I can't fit everything in. And I break a promise to them. And I have to apologize and say, I'm sorry, I just ran out of time. God never apologizes. Because he doesn't have to. 
He makes a promise and he keeps it. Whether it's a promise to Abraham that spans decades, he finally fulfills. Whether it's a promise given to Eve about a son who would crush the head of the serpent that brought sin into this world. Guess what? He finally did it on the cross thousands of years later. So by looking at the scriptures and God's faithfulness in the past, we can know that the promises he makes to us today, he will fulfill. He's a God who keeps his word and we can be encouraged by the faithfulness, the promised faithfulness of God. It's also so important why when we come together, not just here on Sunday, but especially on Sunday, what should be on our lips more than anything else are the sweet and precious promises of God. So when someone is struggling, you don't just say, I'm sorry to hear that, I'll pray for you. That's a good start. But stop and pray right then. And when you pray, go to the Bible and see what, what, what kind of balm does God have for them in this circumstance and speak God's word to one another because that is the means by which we are encouraged and built up and spurred on towards love and good works according to the New Testament. Jesus encouraged, discouraged faith. But secondly, he also vindicates faith. That's the second major point that we see from this passage. Jesus vindicates faith. Some of you I know are not used to the speed right now from your churches or whatever, but I guarantee when we hit point three, we will slow down a little bit, just a little bit. Jesus vindicates faith. We see this in verses 24 through 28. John's messengers leave and they take back Jesus' words to John, but now the crowds have heard the question and they're wondering about John. Okay, So you understand, Jesus... Uh, or John's disciples didn't say, hey, hey, Jesus, uh, c- c- come here, come here. We need to talk about something. Uh, you know, John, John sent us and he's wondering, are, are you the one to come? Uh, that, that didn't happen. Jesus in the middle of, of giving sight and, 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 and lame people walking and leprosy cleansing. They just come up and say, hey, John sent us. And everything stops. So this crowd has heard, these are John's disciples. John's having doubts. I'm not so sure we should have trusted in John because these are some of the people that heard John's message and they were baptized by him. They were baptized when what they thought was obedience to God's prophet as a sign of their repentance before God getting ready for his coming. And now they're like, I'm not sure about this John guy anymore. I'm not sure we should have really believed him. I mean, I mean, a, a little bit happens. He's in prison and suddenly he's like, I'm not sure that, that God's real and that, that, that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus knows what's in their thoughts. Maybe he hears their murmuring. But here's what he says. He says, let me tell you a little bit about John. Let me tell you about John. And so here we see that in vindicating faith, first he vindicates the life of faith. He vindicates the life of faith. Jesus challenges any thoughts of downplaying John's significance by reminding the people of who he is, what they themselves saw John do and what they know him to be. He says in verse 24, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What is he saying there? He means John is not this, this frightened guy. And, and the, the first time difficulty shows up, whoa, I'm getting nervous and scared. And he's blowing back and forth, back and forth. He says, no, no, no. This is the guy who looked at the Pharisees and said, you guys are a brood of vipers. And he tells Herod to his face, you should not have married your brother's sister. And now he's in prison. He's saying, man, John was not scared of anything. And you know that. What did you go out to see, verse 25? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. John wasn't like Herod, dressed in fine, even effeminate clothing, living a life of luxury. John lived out in the wilderness. He wore camel's hair. He ate honey and wild locusts. That is not the life that I would pick for myself. Okay? Uh, Nevertheless, 
um, you know, I'm always a little bit amazed because I think, you know, they're just months apart. Have you ever watched a movie that portrays the gospel and they show John the Baptist and they show Jesus? Jesus looks like he's like 25 and he's like hair is perfectly quaffed, got this neatly trimmed beard and they show John and he's like a wild man. His hair's like going everywhere, got this massive beard, he's got this look in his eyes, look like like 50. He's like, ah, repent. And, uh, and you're thinking they're just a few months apart. But the reality is John lived a harsh life. He's out in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere. He's a rugged man's man. Why? Because that's the ministry God called him to. To get in the faces of the people and to shake them up from their spiritual lethargy and say, God is coming and you better be ready. Because he is coming with salvation, but he is also coming with judgment. And Jesus says, you guys know that about John. You saw his ministry. Verses 26 and 27. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is said, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me. John didn't preach to soothe anyone's conscience. He didn't preach a message of, I just want you to be happy and have your best life now. That's not John's message. And the people knew that. They heard that. They didn't come out to have their consciences smooth. They came out because they thought they were hearing a word from God. And it didn't matter how harsh, how condemning, how much it slammed them between the eyes like a two-by-four because of their sin. If it was God's word, they wanted it. And they craved it. Because God hadn't spoken for 400 years. No prophet in the land for 400 years. And Jesus says, you know what kind of man he was like. You know what kind of man he was like. Now, how does he vindicate himself? Because the reality is this is still not John's finest hour. John's still in prison, and he's still discouraged, and he still has a question mark over Jesus at this point. But you notice what Jesus does not do is judge John by his moment of weakness. Jesus does not look at the low point of John's life and say, See, he's not worthy of me. Instead, he says, He is the greatest of all men. Why? Because he is looking at the totality of John's life. And frankly, that should encourage you. Because on the final day, that's what Jesus is going to do for you as well. I remember watching an old Christian film when I was in high school. That's not that old. That's just the 90s. But the film was old. It was from the early 80s. And it was trying to depict the end of time. Thank you. Somebody got that. So, uh, he's trying to pick the end of time and all these people are lined up at the judgment and it was the most ridiculous thing because you've got these angels standing in front of computer screens typing in the people's names. And I'm thinking, if there is a God, he does not need a computer. Okay? Uh, but that was, you know, high technology in the, in the early 80s. So they're looking at their names on the computer screens and then they have like, literally, you can see like the fuzzy lines, you know, when you're hitting play, then you hit fast forward or rewind and the things are moving fast. So they're showing these screens of the person's life to show all their sins and things. Well, the movie got a lot of things wrong, but the one thing it did get right was this. Everyone will one day stand before God and be judged. Everyone. And the reality is this. If you have trusted in Christ then when you stand before Almighty God, there's, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to run. There's no excuse that you can do, use to pull the wool over His eyes. You, 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 are, you are spiritually, emotionally naked before God with no, nothing but your life. If you have trusted in Christ, then He is going to come alongside you. And He's going to put His arm around you. He's going to say... Father, I want, I want you to know all the ways that this person has shown evidence that they have trusted in me. He's not going to look at the, at the one time you sinned really big, even after you were saved, and say, you're not worthy of me, out. 
No, he's going to say, over the course of his life, has he proven himself, herself, faithful? And he's going to list out all of these things that nobody else saw, but Christ saw. All the thoughts that you had that nobody knew, but Christ knew. And he's going to look at the totality of your life and you will be vindicated that your life bore the fruit that flowed from true faith in him. Knowing that is your future should lead you to live with confidence now. It doesn't matter if you have vindication before people. It doesn't matter if people think you're a terrible Christian. It doesn't matter if people think you're a terrible person. Now, if you are, you should repent. But, but, but if you are faithfully seeking, not perfectly, but faithfully seeking to honor God, God is the only one you've got to worry about. You know, re- recently I had someone make all kinds of accusations about me as I served a few years ago in, in, a, in something beyond the, the local church. And, and part of the accusations were the reality that he had no idea what I was doing during my, my time ministering in the way that I was ministering. He didn't see the meetings I had. He didn't see the people that I talked to. He didn't see the phone calls that I made. So he assumed I was doing nothing. Now, now I have two options. I, I, can, I can get on the phone, I can stand up on a soapbox, and I can say, I was working hard and you don't know anything and who are you to come at me? Or I can just say, the Lord be my avenger. God knows my heart. He knows what I did. On the last day, he will vindicate my faith. That's what Jesus is saying here. That we can have confidence that we stand before God. Jesus will be our advocate. Jesus encourages faith. Jesus vindicates faith. And then finally, point three, Jesus reveals faith. Jesus reveals faith. When all, verse 29, when all the people heard this, that is to say, what he just said about John in our passage... When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized. So what kind of faith does Jesus reveal? First of all, he reveals a humble faith. A humble faith. Notice the contrast between all the people and the tax collectors too, and the Pharisees and the lawyers. Now, if you've been if you've been here at all, I think this is like number twenty seven or something sermon through Luke. Uh, you'll know that there has been this constant theme of of God exalting the lowly and putting to shame the exalted and the haughty, that is the prideful. And and, and we, we, we see that contrast going on even here. Jesus has just vindicated John and his message, and the crowd of sinners is, uh, yells out, "Yes, God is just. God is just." Now you might think, what? What, 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 what does that mean? What, what, what are they talking about there? Why do they say that? Well, Luke tells us it's because, specifically, they had been baptized with John's baptism. Okay, So remember what John's baptism was about. It was about repentance before God. So when the people were baptized, they were admitting their sinfulness and need of God's salvation. And now Jesus says, despite their doubts, yes, John's ministry was from God. He was the greatest of all prophets. They rejoice. They rejoice because they believed his message and they obeyed. And they are declaring that God was just. That is, God was right in his declaration of their sinfulness and their need for repentance. But notice the other group. Luke reminds us that they didn't receive John's baptism. Why? Verse 30. 
because they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. I don't think I can think of a worse statement that can be made about a person's life. I don't think I can think of a more terrifying statement that can be made about a person's life, that they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. These are the people who considered themselves to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. They thought that they were more holy than anyone else in the land, that they were close to God. But we're told here they had actually rejected God's purpose for their life. Why? Because they saw no need for repentance. They were not baptized by John. They came out to see what was going on. Why didn't someone ask them about this? This preacher out calling people to be baptized? So they ask, what are you doing? John tells them and they walk away. And they are not baptized in keeping with repentance because their hearts are full of pride. And it led them to reject the very purpose of God and salvation. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller writes about Andrew Delbanco, a professor at Columbia University who did research on recovery groups. And he talks about being at a meeting on one Saturday. He says that he sat in a group at a basement of a church and he listened to, quote, a crisply dressed young man talk about his problems. Here's what he says. In his narrative, he was absolutely faultless. All his mistakes were due to the injustice and betrayal of others. He spoke of how he was going to avenge himself on all who had wronged him. His every gesture gave the impression of grievously wounded pride, Del Banco wrote. It was clear that the young man was trapped in his need to justify himself and that things could only get worse and worse in his life until he recognized this. While he was speaking, a black man in his 40s in dreadlocks and dark shades leaned over till Del Banco and said, I used to feel that way too before I achieved low self-esteem. Del Banco would later write in commentary on this scene, this was more than just a good line. For me, it was the moment I understood in a new way the religion I had claimed to know something about. As the speaker bombarded us with phrases like, got to take control of my life, and I've really got to believe in myself. The man beside me took refuge in the old Calvinist doctrine that pride is the enemy of hope. What he meant by his joke about self-esteem was that he learned no one can save himself by dint of his own efforts. He thought the speaker was still lost. Lost in himself, but without knowing it. Keller goes on to say, By low self-esteem, the man in dreadlocks didn't mean the young man should come to hate himself. He meant that the well-dressed young man was lost in himself until he commit he was a very flawed human being, a sinner. He would never be liberated to see his own flaws in their true light, to forgive those who had wronged him, or to humbly seek and receive forgiveness from others. The Christian doctrine of sin, properly understood, can be a great resource for human hope. Here's the reality. The crowds in this passage, the sinners, the tax collectors, they had a biblical view of sin, a proper view of sin, and it humbled them before God. If God was going to save them, they needed saving. And their humility of faith is what we need today. Some of us need it because we've never trusted in Christ. We've had a vague relationship with God. We believe God exists, but we've never really turned away from our life of sin and said, what we're just saying about crucifying the passions of this world and the things of this world to Christ and His cross. We've never truly turned away from our life of sin and rebellion, of trying to do things our way, and said, God, save me, forgive me, cleanse me, and lead me as the Lord of my life. 
Today, if you're that person, then you need to recognize your sin and to be humbled in it and to trust in Christ. But there is also a humility of faith for the person who is already a Christian, for our ongoing need of Christ throughout our life to be recognized. There is a a, a great and terrible danger that true Christians can slowly warp into Pharisees. That is to say, to believe that they've got it all together. They look at life and say, you know what, I've lived as a Christian for 20 years, I got this. I can do this. I can make these decisions without having to pray. I, I, I don't need to read any more books. I've got my theology set. I don't need to learn anything else. And to believe somehow that they are self-sufficient in this life. Yes, God saved them. And He's grown them. And He's done a great work. But now, I'm okay. I'm okay. And that's not, that's not the biblical pattern of the Christian life. The reality is we never get over our need of Christ. We need God in order for us to come to Christ, that we might continue abiding in Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to faithfully persevere until the return of Christ. We never get over our need for God to sustain and uphold and give grace for our faith. How do we do that? By being honest about our sin. Remember what Martin Luther said? He said that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. Not that we're getting saved over and over and over again. No, it means that we are constantly aware of our sin so that we can seek God's grace of forgiveness. And in seeking His forgiveness, we are deepened in our relationship with Him as we are reminded that we need Him. And more than that, God is willing to meet that need. There is, it's one thing to say, God is my heavenly Father. And to know it experientially by going to Him as your heavenly Father and finding that what Jesus promised, that He would love His people as much as He loved Christ Himself. Jesus reveals humble faith. He also reveals genuine faith. Verse 31, Jesus asks, So what shall I compare this generation and what are they like? He's specifically thinking of those who have rejected the purposes of God. And to describe his point, he looks to the playground of his day. He says, This generation, verse 32, They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Now what's this all about? Well, think about kids today. What, what do they play on the playground? Uh, several decades ago, they often played war and they played house because that's what they heard about all the time. They saw their mom and dad and they heard about war. These days, usually people, though, we have television, we have movies, we have lots more fantastical books, and kids set that up, and that's what they imitate in their playing. Not they don't play house or war, but they play whatever, whatever kind of input they're getting, right? So at our house today, if, or, or not necessarily today, but anytime you might stop by, and the kids are, are playing inside or outside, you might hear the sounds of, of uh, spies and wizards and space pirates and time-traveling aliens. That's the kind of noise you would hear coming out from our house because that's the kind of stuff they read and they watch and everything else. What about the kids in Jesus' day? Well, there's no, there's no Facebook, right? Uh, there's no film industry. They're probably better off for that one. But here's the thing. What they saw more than anything else on a constant basis were weddings and funerals. Weddings and funerals. And that's what they're playing here. They're they, they, would, they would hear the happy tunes played on the flute and see people dancing as they walked through the wedding processionals and at the funerals they would hear the sounds of the mournful dirge as people wept over their dead friends and family. 
That was everyday life for them. So that's what they played. And notice what Jesus says here. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. In other words, you're not playing the game. They are fickle and they are unhappy with everything God does. Verse 33, 4, he says, signaling the explanation of the song, the, 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 the statement. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he is a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus said, on the one hand, they despised the ministry of John because he was too harsh. He took this act of baptism, which we just saw, that in Old Covenant Israel were reserved, reserved just for Gentiles, for pagans, who acknowledged their gods were false and they wanted to worship the one true God. They would be baptized as a sign of their death to their old life and their, their new life now with Israel. And John said, all of you need to be baptized, even Israel, because we're so corrupt and sinful. And the Pharisees said, that's just going too far, come on. You really think we're like Gentile dogs in our sin? And the message of God through John was, yes, repent! And demonstrate that by being baptized. He says, it is not the sons of Abraham that God is going to bless us. If if, if Abraham needs sons, it's not going to be you. He can turn these rocks into sons for Abraham. It's not about who you know or what you've been born into or anything else. It is about your personal repentance before God. John's life was marked by radical physical removal of the world, not because that was inherently right, but because it it pointed to his radical message of spiritual separation from the world. But what do they say? Oh, he's nuts. He's got a demon. Look at that guy. Crazy. So then on the other hand, Jesus came and did all the things that John didn't do. He ate and he drank. He he went to, to parties with sinners. He didn't call people out of the world into God's presence like John. Instead, he brought God's presence right into the world, into the nitty-gritty of life. And what do they say? He must be a sinner himself. So like disgruntled children who don't get their way, they refuse to play the game. They hate the preaching of repentance and despise the joy of the gospel. Matthew Henry gets to the point of it all when he says this, quote, Oh, the stupidity and vanity of the blind and ungodly world. Even when God is at work to bring salvation, these Pharisees, quote, still found something or other to carpet. That's them. And in the end, Jesus is calling out their falsity of faith. He's saying they put on a good show, but ultimately they're believing in themselves, not in God. They have a hollow faith, a false faith. And that's many today. There are many in the church who have a false faith. They are putting on a good show, but they never respond joyfully to the working of God. This often becomes an excuse for why they never go to church or seem to get involved. This thing is wrong and this thing's not right enough. The pastor upset me. The lady next to me sneezed too hard on me. They miss the forest for the trees. They can't see that God is at work. They can't see people being saved, being baptized, lives being changed because they're so wrapped up in themselves. Even genuine believers can, can enter into this mindset. The preacher is too soft on sin or he's too hard on sin. Some never settle in a church because they don't like the music or there's not enough music or they don't have the right kind of ministries and, and on and on and on. And I want to say, good grief, just join a church with all of its imperfections, listen to God's word, love the people and grow. That's what God wants you to do. If you're looking for a perfect church, then we'll just take you out back and shoot you because it's only in heaven. That's the reality. Every church has its flaws, no matter how godly we want to be. I don't recommend that as, uh, as a means of sanctification, but there it is. 
the point is that Jesus is making and I'm trying to make is stop griping and rejoice in the grace that God has given. Jesus reveals humble faith. He reveals genuine faith. Finally, he reveals the gospel of faith. The gospel of faith. Jesus says, John has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man, that's himself. He's come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. I want to think about that little proverb that Jesus ends with. What does he mean by that? Well, he's picking up this common theme that the Old Testament does of taking wisdom and personifying it. That means treating it like a person and describing it like a person. And here, the wisdom of God is personified as a woman who gives birth to children. These children, in turn, prove wisdom to be right in all she says and does because they are right in all that they say and do. And in this context, it is John and Jesus that are the children of of wisdom. John and Jesus have been criticized for how they live, but in truth, they are displaying the wisdom of God for salvation and how they live. In fact, together, they complement one another in a full presentation of the gospel itself. Remember, John's entire life and ministry was about decrying sin and calling for repentance. If you don't hear that in a gospel presentation, you've not heard the gospel. The, the gospel is, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. You're never going to get the grace until you first learn of the wrath that is to come, that the grace is rescuing you from. Likewise, Jesus, Jesus comes and applies a balm to that. The reality is we've been talking about sin a lot in this sermon, but do you know what sin is? Do you know why we need to be saved from it? A man by the name of Cornelius Plantinga, a great name for a scholar, I think, uh, Cornelius Plantinga writes about sin in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Here's what he says. The Bible presents sin by way of major concepts, principally lawlessness and faithlessness, presented in an array of images. Sin is the missing of a target, a wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both overstepping a line and failing to reach it. Both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. Sin is disruption of created harmony and resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relationship to God. And the sad news is all of us have that because all of us are children of Adam and Eve. Every single one of us. And we reveal, we reveal at the earliest of ages that we are those children with an inherited sinful corruption. Uh, my, my daughter is two. And yet, when I go to change her diaper, she will push my hand away and say, I do it. I do it. And I will say, no, let, let daddy do it. She's never seen another baby being changed and pushing a grown-up's hand away. How did she learn that? She didn't learn it. She is a little pagan, and it welled up from within her heart. It's a sad truth. They, all of my kids, need to hear the gospel to repent and be saved. Not just my kids, everyone's kids, your parents' kids. That means you. 
we all need to... That was the message of John. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus comes and what does he do? He provides both the the teaching but also the visual display of what that salvation looks like. Every time he heals someone, that is a picture not just of the physical healing as great as that was, but of the spiritual healing that God is going to bring. So when the blind see, yes, a physical man who was blind can see. But Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom is like. You are dead, blind to spiritual things, and God is going to give you spiritual sight so that you can see the amazing things that you're doing, that He's doing for you. When someone is sick and dying and in need, and Jesus meets that He need, He heals that sickness. He's saying spiritually, your heart is wicked and deceitful and sick. You are in need of salvation. You can't do it yourself, and I have come to bring it. So together, John and Jesus display the gospel in which we put our faith. That Jesus Christ has come to meet that need. That He died bearing God's wrath against our sin on the cross. That we might be forgiven and cleansed and made whole. That the deviance of our sinful life can be, can be normalized into a life with God without sin. Just a few years ago, a very unassuming young lady became an internet sensation. Her name was Sarah Sherman, and for 29 years of her life, she was deaf. Then, because of medical technology, she received an implant that allowed her to hear for the first time. And her husband videoed uh, them turning the device on and her being to hear for the first time. And he posted the video on YouTube, and, and the hits just skyrocketed like crazy. We'll post it on, on our webpage so you can see it if you've not seen it before. But it, it's amazing as the, the lady is adjusting and adjusting, and, and suddenly... Uh, she hears herself breathing and she realizes, oh, it's on. And, 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 then she, and, and, she, and she kind of gasps. And then she hears the gasp, which, which triggers a laugh. And that laugh then begins to trigger tears. And she's alternating between, I don't know what to be, happy or sad, because this is amazing. And it's such a beautiful picture of the healing that God seeks to bring to us in Christ. Where we go spiritually crippled throughout our life and yet Jesus is there to bring a healing touch, to remove the sin from our life, that we will bear its punishment no more, but more than that, that he will free us from its power. So that when we seek to follow him through the power of God's spirit and the direction of his word, we can actually not sin. We can say no to sin and begin to live lives of holiness. John was no madman with a demon. Jesus was no gluttonous party animal. Instead, John is the one who makes clear that Jesus is the Savior we need, a Savior whose redemption comes to us by faith alone. And every time sinners trust Christ, every time we who are His people remember the gospel, wisdom is justified by her children. Father, we are so thankful for that reality. We are thankful, God, for what you have done for us in Christ. I pray that we would go away encouraged in that today. That if there is one here that does not know you, that, Father, you will begin to weigh on them now to give them a sense of guilt for their sin, but, God, also point them to Christ, their Savior, who will remove that stain of guilt and give them new life in himself. Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.